Good afternoon, everyone, both here in Davos and following us online today. Welcome to today's discussion on rethinking policy for a new era of poverty. I'm Sara Pantuliano, I'm the chief executive at ODI. I mean, here in Davos, just today, we've been hearing a lot about the poly crisis. You know, this new term that is trying to describe our COVID, the climate crisis, economic shocks, rising fragility, are all combining to create complex and new forms of vulnerability. And a byproduct of this poly crisis is obviously the poverty is increasing. Um, that actually after years of decline. But even during this decline, the gap between the rich and the poor, both in country and across countries, was actually deepening. Um, you know, and, and, and the, the world is uh, divided between the wealthy and the poor more than ever before, as the report that Oxfam published just yesterday very poignantly underscored. Last Friday, I was reading, I stumbled actually onto an article in The Guardian written by um, a farmer, a Ugandan farmer who is also an activist. His name is Anthony Kalulu. And he really powerfully described the daily struggle of his community, what poverty really means you know, in a place like um, Eastern Uganda. And in his article, he actually quoted something I had written at the height of the pandemic. Um, I wrote that we could not go back to normal because normal was the problem, because of the deep inequity we had reached. And so I was really hoping that the pandemic would push us to really change. But change we didn't. We didn't reset. We didn't really change the power structures that are creating and deepening this inequality. And you know, if you think about before COVID, we were talking about how the SDGs you know, would take us to a future where there would be no extreme poverty, how we would you know, mitigate the worst sort of elements of poverty by 2030. And instead, where we are today is you know, in the UK, more and more families relying on food banks to an extent that I never thought it was possible to see. 22% of the UK popu population living in deep poverty. That is a G7 nation. Um, many emerging economies in Asia and South America, despite having reached middle income country status, having incredible levels of poverty. And you know, small island states, fragile geographies, many communities leaving the compound effects of not just poverty, but climate breakdown, loss of biodiversity, conflict, you name it. So we're also seeing a reversal of progress in labor force engagement, access to education, uh, political voice, and sexual reproductive health rights that all you know, shape our ability to withstand shocks um, and thrive in today's world. So we decided to convene this panel today because we felt it was really time to rethink how we define and fight poverty. Income levels don't capture the complex and dynamic nature of how poverty is really experienced today. Poverty is not just about money. It's also about all the other assets people have. Tangible assets, like good education, good access to healthcare, digital access, digital skills, but also intangible assets, like access to social networks, you know, social capital. In my view, poverty is inherently political. It's a political choice. And therefore, we need political action to challenge the power structures that are keeping people poor. So I've got a fantastic panel of friends and colleagues with me today to try and unpack this and help think through you know, 
how we can redefine poverty, how we can fight it differently, how we can shape better policy. They each bring a unique perspective to this discussion. Um, just next to me, I have Martin Bird, the chief executive of Poverty Stoplight and the founder and CEO of Fundacion Paraguaya. Welcome, Martin. Next to um, Martin is Winnie Vianima, with no introduction, executive director of UNAIDS, long-standing champion of social justice. Welcome, Winnie. Winnie will have to leave us a little earlier, but there'll be plenty of time to get her views. Um, next to Winnie is Vilas Dar, president of the Patrick McGovern um, Foundation and a global leader on AI and data solutions for a thriving, equitable, and sustainable future. Welcome, Vilas. And last but not least, we have Gargi Ghosh, the president of Global Policy and Advocacy of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and a passionate anti-poverty campaigner for many years. Uh, we'll be joined soon by Helen Clark as well, the former prime minister of New Zealand and global champion of a myriad of social causes. The reason she's late is she's moderating a session on health um, just on the other side of, uh, of this dome, but she will join us soon. Um, we should also be joined by Paula Escobar Chavarria, CNN Chile. Don't see Paula yet. At one point, we'll be here and we'll start with the QA. Please do amplify the discussion on social media. Use the tag, um, the hashtag WEF23 and um, the handle um, at ODI underscore global. Let's get started. Gagi, can I start with you? So, the World Bank has recently estimated that as many as 685 million people were living in extreme poverty at the end of 2022. That, that's a staggering figure. You know, it makes that the second worst year for poverty reduction in the past two decades. How worried are you about these statistics? Where, where do you think we are in the global effort to, I wouldn't say eliminate extreme poverty, I never thought we could eliminate, but at least seriously reduce it. Thank you, Sarah. Um, can you hear me okay? Maybe swap mic with Vilas if that works. Thank you. Um, and first, thank you for having the panel. Um, I think it's just critical that forums like this make space to talk about these tough issues um, like poverty and inequality. Um, I want to start with uh, the good news, I guess, which is that um, for the past several decades, we have seen so much progress on poverty. It's not to say it was enough or equally split, but I think it's really important to ground ourselves in the fact that pulling people out of poverty sustainably is possible, and we've been doing it. Uh, almost no matter which statistic you pick, the number of people living in extreme poverty, uh, children dying before their fifth birthday, all of that has gotten better in a dramatic way in the past couple of decades. I say that to reassure skeptics that it is possible, uh, this undertaking, and that it's not enough to say, well, this is just part of life, it fades into the background, it deserves our attention. Especially because that progress, of course, now is in jeopardy. Um, you know, we use this word now, polycrisis, uh, which is very convenient, a little too sanitized sometimes, yes. I think. Um, if you take the lens from where uh, we as the Gates Foundation work intensely in sub-Saharan Africa, um, of course this is the continent where the greatest number of uh, the world's extremely poor continue to live. Um, 
In the past few years, it has been harder to stay healthy, harder to access care, more expensive to put food on the table, more expensive to grow your own food. Um, just about every aspect of daily life has gotten harder. And equally, from the country perspective, all of that has led to a very, very difficult fiscal situation. The numbers just aren't adding up from a, um, from a liquidity perspective and in many cases from a solvency perspective. So the poly crisis, of course, demands a, a poly response in a way. And um, I hope we are focused both on the very specific problems where I'm super optimistic there is progress to be made. We know how to get fertilizer into the hands of smallholder farmers in Africa so that the Russia-Ukraine invasion and its consequence on fertilizer availability doesn't become a multi-year food famine crisis. We know how to get fertilizer in hands. We know how to um, reach zero-dose kids with vaccination. Uh, we've done it in the hardest parts of the world. We need to get really focused on restarting those programs, many of which um, were upended by COVID. But then we also need to wrap that with a different kind of global compact and recommitment to work on poverty, uh, to work on uh, equality, to do that with a gender smart lens. Through that macro frame, um, I think initiatives like the uh, reform of the multilateral development banking system is super critical. I think the coincidence of three or four G20s in a row led by southern governments is too good an opportunity to pass up. So I would say, and I hope we'll get to talk about this, um, I am more optimistic about the possibility for solutions in the very specific, and I am more focused on making sure that political wrapper, as you say, comes alongside. I mean, what I was hearing, you know, through the, this ability to find the solutions for specific things is actually that ultimately, if there is a will, if there is a political will, we can do it, which I think, you know, it's probably going to be a, um, an undercurrent of our discussion today. Uh, Martin, you come from Paraguay. I wanted to ask you, you know, in a middle-income economy like Paraguay, what does poverty look like today? And, and how has it changed over the past, say, 10 or 20 years? Well, in a, in a poor or middle-income middle um, country like mine, there are people with money who are poor, and there are people without money who are not poor. So the whole definition of the World Bank and the United Nations and the United States government is 100% wrong. They miss the point. For example, they uh, count the poor as individuals and not family households. They insist, for example, on child poverty and they don't mention the mother. Poverty is the people who sleep and eat under the same roof. And that's where the, that's the good news, is that instead of there being 8 billion uh, people in the world, there are only 1.8 or 2 billion family households. Second, they, uh, they insist on poverty indexes. Uh, 
multidimensional poverty index, uh, uh, social progress index. It's all about aggregating data, aggregating data, indexes, indexes, indexes. And you want to say, why are there indexes? This is because poverty is measured by and for governments and policymakers. It's for policymakers to aggregate data and to rank. But today we have, we're, li we're in, the, in Davos, it's the fourth industrial revolution. As, as you said, we know how to take fertilizer to every farmer, right? And every farmer has a Facebook page or a WhatsApp or a cell phone. So basically what we are doing now in Paraguay is we are using technology to allow the poor to measure their own poverty. And for example, we have what we developed, the poverty stoplight, which is a very simple uh, methodology whereby with images you can see we have enough income, yes, yellow is poor and red is very poor, and then we have vaccines. And when you allow the poor to measure poverty, you can incorporate subjective indicators. For example, uh, I feel sure of myself. I uh, live in a world without uh, violence, etc. And instead of aggregating data, we can have a dashboard approach. Imagine every family, and this is what we're doing, every family with their own dashboard. Is this family poor or not poor? There's a, there's a few green, but of course. This uh -huh. depends. Who defines exactly. if this family is poor? The family. family. And we're doing this in the UK, in 10 cities in the UK and in 36 counties in the US. This family is poor, as Leo Tolstoy would say in Anna Karenina, all happy families are alike and each unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. And the beauty of this is that you can have the unthinkable, a family plan to overcome poverty. So here that we have in the, in the main street, that you have blockchain and all the technology, we can really make um, a difference if we empower, for example, the Sustainable Development Goals. Who made them? For whom? Therefore, governments, because it was defined that only governments can do this. Now we can use technology to measure differently, allow people to act upon it differently. And as people have WhatsApp, Facebook, telephones, we can empower them. So you, to answer your question, are people in Paraguay more poor or not? In some areas. And it depends. It depends on the droughts, and it depends on the, the war in Russia. We export beef to Russia. <laughs> do we have anything to do with the war? <laughs> so, right? And uh, so, so that's basically how it So we, we already sort of strained some of the solutions. And I think that's what's interesting, because you know, there is uh, an element of optimism about what we can do. Let's discuss that in more detail um, in, in a second. But I want, Winnie, I want to ask you about an important element that I think also comes into defining poverty, which is well-being and health. You know, we don't normally use these indicators to define whether or not people are poor. How, how does this come into the definition of poverty? And what kind of policy implications would that drive? Thank you. 
and I'm delighted to be on this panel with these very interesting people. I want to introduce one word here. We're talking about poverty, how to measure poverty, how health comes into poverty, but I want to put here the word suffering. Suffering. Because we've been measuring poverty for long and I've been here connecting it to inequality and asking leaders to focus on inequality. Because we have to look at what's happening to people at the bottom and what's happening also at the top. And also to understand that indeed poverty isn't just income poverty, it is also all the other forms of suffering that we want to capture. And so here when you mention health, yes, COVID woke the world up to the fact that health is such an important part of well-being and that it is a right and that when everyone doesn't enjoy it, actually everybody else can also lose it. Even those who had it will lose it because others don't. How we are connected, health is key. But now I want to put some other thoughts here because you've mentioned that poverty can be seen as different assets, tangible and intangible. Yes, we focused on income. Let me give an example of a woman who earns $4 a day stitching garments in Bangladesh in a factory. She might have an income which is above the poverty level. That's another thing that we set the bar so low that people are suffering, but we say they are not in poverty. That's part of the problem of our measurements. So she might be earning above the poverty line. She may even have a job. She has a job, in fact. But if she gets pregnant, she'll be fired. If she gets sick, she will not be paid. She'll only be paid for when she works. She cannot ask for a pay rise. She will be fired. She has no voice at work. This is a job. So I have argued that we should measure dignity. The dignity that this job gives you, the dignity that this money brings you. We don't measure that. So, so measurements of poverty, indeed I agree, need to capture tangibles and intangibles. I'll give you an example. One day, I come from Uganda. We have affirmative action for women in politics. We have many women at the political level, in the cabinets, in the parliaments, more than you have in the United States of America. We are better on that count. But one day, our vice president, who was a woman, shocked us one morning. The headline that in the all the newspapers was that she's walking away from her home because she's been a victim of violence from her husband. The whole vice president of the country was a victim of violence. What is violence? What does that mean? That she was, uh, even as powerful as she was, she didn't have the freedom to do certain things. She'd get beaten for not doing what the man wants. So there are tangibles and intangibles, but we must count dignity. And that means 
those things that we don't have in our lives and that we haven't been measuring as forms of poverty. These combine for people at the bottom to take away everything, and no, uh, not even the income that's above the poverty line can describe the suffering that is there. And let us remember that we are in a time of polycrisis, as you've called it, when a few are making billions for themselves as others are crushed at the bottom. That is what we have to measure. Just measuring an individual and how they are surviving or not surviving isn't enough. We need to see that that is linked to how some people are attracting and capturing wealth. Capture, wealth is important. Capturing wealth and using that wealth to control everything else, including the power to decide over your own body, including your labor, including your voice in your community, captured by those who've captured the wealth at the top. Oxfam came out with its report again, saying in the middle of this crisis, the food industries, the food industries, the energy industries have made billions for their shareholders. They have to be taxed and that money must go down for the ones suffering at the bottom. When we don't look at inequality, we miss the point. So for me, my last point is there that inequality has to be captured as a way to measure the well-being of everybody. Everybody needs a share of that cake. My last point about is about a huge inequality that never gets discussed. This is the poverty, the poverty of time, the time poverty that women face around the world, in rich countries and in poor countries. That the time a woman spends in caring for her family, which she loves, caring for her community, and the time she puts into productive work to be paid is so much that she's left with little energy for herself, for her well-being. And this is not counted. It's a subsidy women pay to the whole economy. That time they pay to all these other things that men don't actually do, unpaid care work. This is critical. This is a, an inequality that needs to be factored in in measuring. The time poverty, particularly of women, is a part of what we must capture. Because at the bottom, women's lives are lives of drudgery. And time poverty is a part of it. So I want to thank you so much and say that I agree with looking at, at uh, poverty as a combination of tangibles and intangible assets, but we must also look at it as an inequality. Uh, like you've said, a political choice to keep some at the bottom. Yeah, I think we're quite aligned here you know, on, on the panel in terms of the importance of redefining these frameworks. I couldn't agree more with you about inequality and yeah, dignity, absolutely. It's something we definitely need to bring back. Uh, and I'll come back to these issue of measurements. I want to ask a follow-up question to Martin. But first, I want to go to the last. Martin has talked about technology. You are a leader in technology space. Uh, how do you think the digital economy is reshaping the concept of poverty, of wealth, you know, of, uh, of inequality? And particularly, digital literacy 
you know, how important is it in today's definition of poverty? Thank you, um, Sarah. And I have to say, it's hard to follow you, Winnie. <laughs> but I will say this. Um, I think in your heart and in the hope that you just gave us, I think we all find strength. I think the first thing I wanted to say to you will now echo something you said. The antidote to poverty is not wealth. The antidote to poverty is an overflowing cornucopia of human dignity. And I love the way that you put it. It's the language we use at all times. What does that mean when we come to the digital economy? Again, Sarah, you spoke to the idea of poverty as a choice. And I think the interrogation we must do is whose choice? The digital economy is an extension of an economy we already have built. And where I'm a huge optimist for the potential of artificial intelligence, of data science, I spent time this morning with the heads of several governments talking about the digitization of their economies to create economic value and virtue. The question we still have to ask is for whom? You spoke a little about digital literacy and about the capacity to measure. I think of it from the other angle. How do we ensure that every person on the planet has the individual agency to enter into the digital economy? Not because they are recipients of aid or because they are consumers of education, but because they make a choice about what they want to experience and we make a shared commitment to make sure that they have access to it. Without starting from that sense of an individual as the agent of literacy, whether digital or otherwise, we're having the wrong conversation. The second part then is to ensure that we have the social compact in place that allows, whether it's governments, philanthropies, civil society, or the private sector, to deliver the kinds of skills, tools, opportunities, and pathways that allow somebody to make a choice about how they want to live their life and the life of their family. And the third, and I have to say this, is a fundamental provocation and question to leaders across the world. How will we keep faith with the global majority? in a history that has often been troubled because we have not done that? How do those who hold power and privilege, how do those who hold the gateways to technological promise, those who hold the ownership of new models of artificial intelligence or data science, make sure that they live up to a moral commitment that's never been named? That as we build these tools in ways that create new economic, social, political opportunity, that we're willing to actually question the fundamental presumptions under which we built our economic structure. Technology is no panacea. We know that. We think it creates great promise, but that promise is unrealized until we make a political commitment to the idea that this promise has to be shared for everyone across the planet. Absolutely. Can, can I come back? This is so, it gets to the heart of the issue. And, and, you know, it is how we use the technology that ultimately is a political choice as well, including, you know, to allow people to measure, as you say, and define the policies. Because it's interesting, you know, when you were talking about the, the, you know, the poverty line that we have established, you know, the poor have not been involved in setting the measurements, the standards, the definition of poverty. It's all been done by, you know, those who sit in the rooms of power, let's face it. Uh, Martin, that's what you try to do, is to get, you know, as you, as you explained, people to define this. How can they really be brought together, you know, more globally to do that through technology? Helen, I'll give you a chance to catch your breath and then I'll come to you. I'm not ignoring you. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, um um, everybody in the world knows what it means to be not poor. 
the indigenous people in my country, those tribes know what it means to be fine, okay, and bad. As one can be okay in some areas and not in other areas. That's why we have this um, multidimensional uh, approach. Um, working, for example, with a formerly incarcerated African-American youth in New Orleans or with the homeless in, in Los Angeles. They know what it means to be fine, not poor, poor, or very poor. And uh, after this meeting here, I will be going to Brussels because we are, we're, we're gonna be working with um, the European Union to help the Roma people from Bulgaria Romania and um, Slovakia to define what it means for the Roma to be not poor. Because the definitions of the European Union have been in place, but they don't, right? So yes, so it, it, it is a matter of uh, learning to have empathy, compassion, and to understand perspective. For example, um, here in the World Bank, they say financial inclusion. It is a public policy. Or food security. It is a public policy, right? But from the perspective of a family living in upstate New York, in Elmira, New York, the question is not food security. It is we eat nutritious food. You can be living, or we have enough income. We have family savings. We have a family budget. It is the perspective that we have to accept. And that can be operationalized in, in every country. And what you also need is um, um, agency and uh, self-efficacy. Um, to help to empower everybody. By the way, we are all poor in some areas. Or are you completely green in everything? <laughs> so I think that this is something that we need to incorporate. But the United Nations needs to understand that the people of the world need to be empowered to measure their own poverty. And the good news is that they can. And the good news is when they're given an opportunity, they take it. And um, we have seen great progress, so I but share with you, I'm very optimistic. Let me bring in a, you know, a well-seasoned UN leader and leading politician <laughs> that can you know, help answer the question. Helen, we're discussing how we can really broaden this definition of poverty, how we can consider other assets and access you know, to education, to health, to technology, to political voice um, in you know, to, to, in defining how we fight poverty more effectively. You have so much experience, both leading an international organization, leading, you know, a country. How can we do that? Well, firstly, really sorry for being late. There's a rather long and chilling queue at the door, so I've been thawing out while I've, I've sat here, so I'm sorry to have missed so much of the discussion before this. But, you know, thinking about these issues on the way, uh, well, on the way to, to Davos and the, the way here, uh, 
Yeah, obviously, poverty is challenging so-called rich countries as much as it's challenging so-called poor countries now. You know, the extent of inequality in rich countries is simply staggering. I was moved to tweet a couple of days ago about the great sacrifice of Tim Cook, who took a 40% cut in his earnings, <laughs> 84 million to 42 or something. I mean, <laughs> this is obscene, right? <laughs> I mean, what, what kind of world are we living in? So it, it seems to me that the mantra around the sustainable development goals was leave no one behind, but we're leaving not only whole countries behind, but whole communities within countries, and then you know, gender, LGBTQI, indigenous, uh, ethnic and faith minorities. As societies, we're very good at leaving people behind, and, and clearly we need some new approaches that go beyond uh, the universal. Now, you know, obviously, we want universal health coverage. We want universal access to, to education. We want the things that the goals spell out. But I think, sorry, you put your finger on something when you said, you know, what about voice? What about some co-creation? Uh, one of the best things I saw in the, the women's health movement was the work done by the White Ribbon Alliance, which did the surveys out through their national offices saying, what do women want? What do women want? Right? <laughs> you put the question, what, what do poor people want? Let them articulate what it is that they want, rather than on high, we knowing what is best and, and handing it out. And of course, uh, even within you know, a concept like universal health coverage, if you try and deliver it as sort of template 101, you're not going to reach people. I'll give you a very practical example of that from, from the pandemic in my country, where we ended up with uh, about a a solid quarter, I suppose, the New Zealand population locked down because Public Health 101 didn't recognise that if the Delta virus was spreading among the communities of people who use drugs, you don't send round the local policeman, right? Because people will get under the bed. And we, we, because basic 101 of communicating with people where they were, as they were, with the needs that they had was, was completely, completely missed. So I think it's, it's time to step back and say, yes, we want these things universally, but within that, people have to be able to define what their needs are and how they want them delivered. And, and the delivery may obviously be best through what they create themselves as delivery mechanisms. So that's my, my starting peroration. Perfect. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Winnie, I know you need to go, but I think we all concur of how important it is that it's really the poor that can articulate um, what it is that they need. What political approaches do we need to make sure that that happens? You know, what do we need to change to make that happen? We started with a discussion on how to measure poverty, and I said millions are suffering and a few are gaining at the top, and that when we measure, we must measure the two, measure both the income and the other ways that people suffer, including the time poverty that women suffer, including the violence that many people suffer, the discrimination, the racism. All these are forms of suffering that we should capture when we are measuring uh, well-being. Now, today I've come across, not today, today, I mean, there is an idea that has reached its time. And that is that notion of global public investments. Yeah. That 
governments, you said a lot about governments not being important. For me, I'm not letting governments off the hook. We vote for them so that they serve us, they create the societies that we want. They need to come together and put together resources for those things that are most important for our well-being, our health, our education, the social protection of vulnerable people, the environment and its renewal, and that these should be declared global public goods and investments made every country to put there according to its means, but taking out according to its needs. It's an idea that has, I think it's time we thought about it that way because we are wider and wider apart with a global economy that extracts from the weakest and gives to the, those with the strongest elbows and we've reached a point where we are about to destroy our own planet. It's time we rethought and actually had global public goods that are paid for by everybody and that everybody enjoys. Those, that's for me the direction to I take. Agree. And Eden Clark is one of the people who've introduced that to me. Maybe you could say more, I need to leave now. Yeah, thank you so much, Rini. It's been fantastic having you with us. Thank you very much. Um, we're very, very grateful. We'll, we'll uh, capture the key. Yeah, we can definitely give you a hand. A hand, thanks. But I, w I want to pick on your, you know, global public goods. Obviously, you know, technology, digitalization is one, Vilas. So, uh, um, you know, I come back to you to ask what, what a really successful anti-poverty strategy would be in the digital age. Yeah. You know, the first thing I would say is to come back to the role of institutions. The critical role of these institutions that have been set forward to solve global poverty for 50 years. I'll leave it at that. No, actually, I will not. I will be provocative. Look, we saw what happened when people faced crisis in a time of war. And we saw that new generational institutions were able to enter into a place like Ukraine and deliver food aid so much more efficiently than the multilateral institutions that were supposed to do it. What does that tell me? It tells me that there's time and a moment and an opportunity now to look at the public trust that's been invested in these institutions and ask the question, have they learned enough from the digital revolution that's already happened to make sure they are the very best that they can be at delivering that service? I think of examples that boggle my mind. The fact that private companies can manage international global supply chains to get a widget from here to there in uh, seven days. And a local food bank still struggles to match the needs of the most vulnerable people in their community, maybe in upstate New York, because food crises still exist in the most developed countries with the solutions and the assets that they're getting from their farmers. So these institutions that have served so well to support a public commitment need to look at how they're delivering the service that they're supposed to. And the digital economy offers incredible promise around that, right? The idea of reviewing our practices to learn from those who have invested in research and development, to say there are new institutions necessary to, provide, to protect our individual privacy, our data dignity, these new issues of personal vulnerability that are emerging in a digital world. And to actually make a compact to say, we can bring trust together with technical possibility to actually build a new kind of service delivery for the world. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Gagi, you, you're talking about public institutions. Um, uh, Winnie was talking about, you know, really bringing governments back in the forefront. How, how can we engage, really, again, these institutions, the, also philanthropists, um, in restarting this fight against poverty, particularly extreme poverty? Yeah, thank you. Please. <laughs> um, first of all, I just want to come back to the topic of measurement. Um, Martin Revelian, who I think we can credit or blame for the the really deep work on on poverty measurement, this dollar twenty five a day, who who passed away recently. Uh, you know, for me, it is a sort of necessary but insufficient uh, concept, right? Necessary because it gave us something to focus on, but. Uh, I don't know anybody, well, of course, there's a, there is a, a, a group that thinks we should just sort of focus on handing cash because somehow the world will be different if we get folks to $1.29 a day. And, but I think most of us uh, really sort of understand that poverty is about power as much as it is about finance. And so we need to think differently about systems and agency and voice. Um, for me in the work we do, Sarah, uh, you know, the way to go about this first, you know, the SDGs are the signpost we use, um, not as a substitute for community engagement, but as a place to start because there was so much consultation and so much voice in those. Uh, and so that is our um, kind of multi-dimensional focus that we believe leads families, women, uh, countries, uh, on a on an equitable growth path, um, we have to work both at the community level and at the global level, right? So, just to give you an example, um, you know, something we care very much about is that uh, more money is spent better to achieve the SDGs um, at at all those levels. At the community level, we have for many many years funded um, budget advocates. Um, on the ground, uh, in sort of district level, uh, you know, su sub-national levels, um, so that, you know, uh, communities themselves can track, oh, the government said they were spending money on education, where did that go? Why have I seen no improvements in my sanitation system or my health system? Um, it's a lot to ask to activate communities, um, but we've we've been almost universally um, uh, surprised how much time communities will make to advocate for themselves given the right uh, tools, space. You have to pair that at the national level to um, track resources, hold politicians to account for what they say they will do. Um, I was talking to a, a friend who works in um, a country, I think I'm gonna name, uh, not name the country, uh, going into an IMF program and it will be the 22nd or 23rd time that the IMF recommends the country should update and expand their taxation system. Guess what? That is a political equilibrium. The country's administrative capacity can probably do better, but there are choices being made. So you, know, you, have, to, you have to look at the national level. But equally, internationally, I agree with where Winnie, I think, ended. Um, there absolutely is space for a sort of global compact that seriously looks at the financing we'll need to make progress in the next few years. Um, I, I, don't, I don't mean that in a um, uh, apple pie way of dreaming of massive numbers. We, we need to look at 
the most serious emitters and have a serious plan on how to um, uh, mitigate emissions. We need to look seriously at um, how to prevent the next pandemic, which took such an enormous toll on global GDP and families. We've done not much serious about making sure the science and the global cooperation systems are in place so that we would do better next time. So we need that sort of agenda setting for the modern age accompanied by a financing plan that brings uh, public development finance, private finance, uh, domestic taxation, philanthropies together um, in a way that is, that is practical for the challenges we face. Thanks. I'm going to open up in a second. We'll have 15 minutes or just under for a few questions, but maybe 10. But I want to come back to you, Helen. I think ways, what I'm hearing you know, from the panel clearly is the importance of a really public commitment, bringing in you know, also uh, the private sector to redefine you know, how we and, and, and sort of developing the policies. But, but you know, they ultimately, we need a, a political compromise on a fairer redistribution of gains. What are the risks if we fail to act, if governments and elites fail to act, Helen? I think there's a lot of very angry populations out there at the moment, and a failure to act runs the risk of a breakdown in social cohesion and outright uh, social conflict, and then often a, you know, the backlash to that is more repression, and you know, it's a nasty, nasty slippery slope. Uh, Secondly, the politics in a lot of countries have got very polarised, um, where there's almost no, no discourse, you know, almost not, no common value system. Everyone's sort of taken their positions and you know, won't budge from that. So I think we're at quite a risky time, and you see this playing out in, in, the, in the classic democracies, the transition democracies, emerging democracies. It's, it's, it's very, very difficult. If we, if we step back from there, I want to pick up what Winnie said about the global public investment approach because there's a, a very keen group advocating that and they make the point that we shouldn't set up any new global funds to do anything unless it's set up on these kinds of principles, which is you know, everyone pays in according to their, their needs, but you then allocate from it. A, everyone pays in according to means and you allocate according to, to needs. And that was an approach that uh, independent panel for pandemic preparedness and response advocated with respect to supporting uh, the capacity for preparedness and response. And now, of course, what we've ended up with is a World Bank pandemic fund on a classic model uh, where the donors have put in you know, a tenth of what's needed and whether it'll ever get to what's needed on that model is a, is a moot point. But if you took a GPI approach, you would say, yes, Liberia, you pay in X, but actually you're going to get out Y. Uh, US, you pay in this, but actually you don't get paid out at all. But, but the principle is we all put in and then we're supported according to, to our needs. And you need a, you know, an inclusive governance to go with that as well. So I think the GPI people are on to something, that any new fund we should really push to be set up on, on these uh, principles, because the old sort of donor charity models, then purchasing things at market rates uh, don't work. And just a sort of a shout out on this, uh, some of us are working through a, to a Bellagio process uh, soon on how to apply this kind of approach to what you need to fight pandemics, these, these global common goods of the diagnostics, the therapeutics, the, 
the vaccines, the oxygen, the PPE, you know, all the things that those with means got access to fast and others have never got access to at all or in very small quantities. We need a different kind of global commons approach with the financing to back it uh, behind this. And if we could get these kinds of approaches accepted, I think it would you know, be one of the components of trying to rebuild trust again. But there's not much trust at the moment because people see that those what have take more <laughs> and those what haven't aren't getting a, a slice of the cake. And this doesn't make for a happy world. It doesn't make for a happy country at the, at the local level. Definitely not. The risks are very high, as you say. We've got just 10 minutes for a quick round of questions. If you are very brief, introduce yourself. Um, say if the question is directed to anyone in particular. And yeah, let's try to be brief and I'll bring a few more. The lady there. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Jocelyn Formsma. I'm uh, with the YGL delegation. Um, I also am the CEO of a national uh, indigenous not-for-profit in, in Canada. And um, I guess, so my, I'll also maybe give a little bit more context very quickly. Um, I'm from the Treaty 9 territory in Northern Ontario in Canada um, that has 49 First Nations, um, most of which are not accessible by road. Um, many, the only way that you can get there is by plane, uh, sometimes by train, um, but tickets can cost up to $1,300 one way, right? Um, cost of goods and services and all that kind of stuff is, is astronomical. Um, and, and poverty runs uh, rampant within a lot of indigenous communities, both within um, on, on reserve, but also within the, um, the urban spaces, uh, which is where I primarily work. Um, and the poverty also is one of the main factors driving indigenous children into the child welfare system, also related to incarceration rates, human trafficking. Um, and so to this idea of a new policy and wealth distribution model, the charitable model is old. And I was hoping this panel would kind of touch on a new idea on poverty that also is inclusive of marginalized communities within the global north because those systems aren't reaching us and our government, and they're saying go to your government, but our governments are not also responsive within those policy spaces. So it kind of leaves a gap for us to be able to access this global network of the conversation on poverty and also um, we're not being able to access our governments effectively to, um, to, to kind of work on this, on this um, issue. So uh, yeah, if anybody has that idea, I, I'm just open for, to the panel to, to reflect on that. It's an excellent question, um, thanks. Anyone else, any questions or comments? I can, we have a big question there. Um, I don't know if Martin, Helen, any of you, Gargi, I mean obviously, how, how do we tackle poverty in, uh, um, in wealthy countries, they can, you know, where communities can access the, um, the, the national system or the international system. And it's, it's, it's a cogent question in the country where I live, in the UK, and many others today. Uh, Katja, you have a question too. Let me, let me take one, the, another two and then come back to the panel in just one round. Uh, Katja Iverson, the advisor on all kinds of gender things and global health. But my, my question and comment would be the data work, because it's when we kind of talk about poverty and we talk about data, there's still so many places where it's not disaggregated. And so we don't capture what we need to capture. And when we don't have the data we need, we can't do the policies needed, and we can come up with all kinds of schemes and all kinds of plans, but we're not targeting, we're not getting to where we need to be. So that's one. The other one is, 
I'm deeply involved in a lot of the work on the well-being economy. How can we tweak the way, it's not, no, it's not just a tweak, it's actually a revolution. How do we look at economy from a well-being perspective of people and not from a short-term profit? Because that's kind of what we need to. We need to put the well-being of people and the planet at the center and not the short-term gain, not the profit. Because if we, if we don't change that, we're not changing fundamentally what is driving both humanity and the planet over the cliff. And it's great to see that the EU is doing it, OECD is working on it, WHO is working on it, but we also need the big companies and we need countries to take it up to a much higher degree. Thank you. And last question here. Um, thank you. Um, Lisa Heinrich from the Wellcome Trust. Um, I guess two qu um, one reflection, another question. You, asked, you looked at me and asked me, you know, am I, no, that's fine, um, am I poor? And, you know, and that was maybe a challenge to, to earlier. Um, sure, I might be by some measurements poor in time, as Winnie pointed out. Um, but at in the aggregate level, I don't think I should be the target of any of these actions, right? I think I worry if we're making a very broad, and I think it's good that we should broaden up to like marginalized communities in the global north, very much so. I mean, what we see in Los Angeles or in California, in, in San Francisco, in not that much in Berlin, but it's, gonna, it's happening, um, is really, really worrisome. And so I think, yes, a global look at poverty. Um, I worry though, if we do it too broad, then uh, we're gonna miss out really um, helping those that are affected most. Um, and then a second question, um, or again, like it's provocation. Um, we are the World Economic Forum, and I feel like we are talking amongst ourselves in a kind of a community um, of um, people who work in the development space. Um, and it's very sad to see is that, uh, to your point about like short-term gains, like what can we do? How do we need, as a community, have to talk to those uh, in power with ourselves having power um, to, because they sit here at the World Economic Forum being, you know, saying great things, but at the end of the day, not really doing anything. Um, what is it that we need? How do we communicate these issues in a way that is actually being acted on? Thank you very much. Some really good questions. You have one minute each to address what you think is really crucial. We need to close on time. Um, I'll start with Martin and we go in this order. Um, thank you. I think. It has to be one minute. I think that we have to promote no poverty capitalism. We have to enter this thing from a different perspective. For example, um, I am working with some banana producers in Ecuador, and we are going beyond fair trade. Fair trade only promises fair trade. We have to go to no poverty banana, no poverty chocolate no poverty and have the people define what that means. In the case of the First Nations of Canada, what does it mean for them to be green in everything and, 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 and show the world that it can be reached? With this system, we will, not, we will not reach it. So congratulations for the Sustainable Development Goal. Congratulations for the uh, World Bank, Martin Zavalion, um, effort in, in establishing at least a line for the world, let's move 
you know. And I know this sounds crazy, but polio was eliminated, right? Tuberculosis was eliminated. Poverty has to be eliminated in that same kind of approach. Thank you, Martin. Vilas. You know, poverty is often used as a label. The people from a place must be poor. It is, I think, one of the most dehumanizing things we do. And yet, Jocelyn, in your question, I think you speak to something really fundamental, that poverty is not an attribute that's independent of the ways that you define a system, that it is probably one of the most intersectional of them. I think in the case of indigenous peoples around the world, you're seeing agency in the structures of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, but more in the agency of groups coming together and saying, we're taking action independent of what the system has allowed us to do. I think in that, there's something quite hopeful, right? That redistribution is a political choice, that poverty is a political choice, that individual agency is an inherent right, that the rights of indigenous people are inherent rights, that the rights of marginalized communities are human rights. To start from there and then to say, how do we use that agency if the system doesn't work for us to work outside of the system or to change it? And I'm quite inspired by what we're seeing around that around the world. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, first, I just want to um, respond as a Canadian. Thank you, Jocelyn, for um, raising your question here. And I know you do in Ottawa as well, and for being inconvenient on those issues. Um, you know, my the work that I'm closer to now, um, my organization does some work in US education and coming out of the pandemic. Um, we now have the data, to Katya's point, to show that um, education progress has, has slid backwards, especially for black and brown children um, in our country, um, especially on math. And it has no political salience. It's just, it's an inconvenient fact that will get ignored by Congress as they fight about other things. Um, and th that has to change, and we need activists to be louder on those issues. I want to go from that to zoom out and um, and just you know respond to the push for for ideas in this setting, especially in in Davos. Um, you know something that I've been thinking about recently is on uh, and what I want to spend most of my time here on is not actually talking to the development community, but but really thinking about um, the S in ESG. Um, I think ESG may be at risk now because you know in a economic headwinds. It is, it is the first thing that will get strained. But the E has had so much work, analysis, effort, advocacy, and the S really is a weak, weak muscle. And it's a lot of what we're thinking about. It's a lot of how you would get Canadian companies to bring some political salience to issues of reach, access, inclusion. Um, I don't have a solution, but it's, um, I'm putting it out there so that smart people in this audience and, and joining remotely will, um, will start thinking about how we might push the S forward. Thank you. Thank you. Helen, last but not least. <laughs> last point, I'll try and be brief. I, th I think just picking up Katja's point about you know, what isn't measured doesn't count. And it is astonishing the range of statistics gathered for our society where we don't disaggregate by, by gender and other salient factors. So you know, again, we need to recognize the intersectionality of allocation and distribution and benefit uh, across societies. And we can't do that if we're not actually measuring properly. But thank you so much, Martin, Vilas, Gagi, Helen, and of course, Winnie. If, I mean, obviously there were no ready-made solutions. These are complex issues, but if anything, I hope this, this 
conversation helped all of us, you know, think how the extent to which poverty really is a political choice. And therefore, it is a political act to which we all need to contribute to change the status quo, to really push for policies that really challenge and fight poverty. We are all activists. We are all political <laughs> activists in a way or another because you know, we vote, because we can push our governments, we can push you know, the, the businesses from which we buy things to do differently. So I hope that we leave you know, this conversation with an exhortation um, to act. I mean, systemic crisis always spur change and innovation. I felt after COVID we kind of you know, missed that opportunity a bit. Now we are in this new phase of the poly crisis. Let's not get this one go to waste. Helen was very clear about the risks of inaction. There are a lot of angry people out there. As I said at the beginning, we really can't go back to normal, to the normal of the before, before the poly crisis because normal was the problem. So let's get going and keep pushing for it. Um, have a great rest of the day and rest of the week in Davos. And thank you to the online audience as well.